Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is William Arkin, and we spoke back in September about a book he published in 2021. The title of that book is The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars, an excellent book. And we went in detail about that book, but we're going to kind of cover some topics around another book that he published in 2011. The title of that book the book we're going to cover today is Top Secret America, The Rise of the New American Security State, which I read through. Really fascinating book. It's a very well put together book on Kindle. It has a lot of multimedia that I haven't seen in some other books. But Mr. Arkin is one of America's premier military experts. His investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times, and has won many awards. He served as an NBC news analyst and reporter for 30 years and is the best-selling author of more than a dozen, dozen books. And uh, so I recommend you go back through and you can listen to the list of books that I went through in that earlier interview. But again, we're going to talk about this book, Top Secret America, really fascinating book. So William M. Arkin, are you there? I am. Thank you very much for having me on again. Awesome. Well, thanks for returning. Uh, this book was published in 2011. Can you talk about your background and what led you to put this together. You published it with uh, Dana Priest, correct? Dana Priest, yes, Dana that's Priest. correct. And so we teamed up at the Washington Post. Uh, I was sort of the expert and Dana was the scribe. And uh, we worked on this for over two years. So I guess it gives you an idea of what kind of leeways uh, the news media has when they're actually allowed to do investigations. And uh, Donnie Graham, who was then the publisher, you know, really indulged us for two weeks of producing nothing else but working on this project. Uh, we compiled a, uh, a list of uh, every government organization that had been created since 9-11 that was working in the top secret world. And then we created a list of every contractor that we could identify that was equally working in that world. And it was a, you know, it was a pretty overwhelming data project by itself, both trying to figure it out and then also putting it all together. And along the way, we discovered that 9-11 not only had led to an explosion of both of those, of both the government's uh, apparatus of secrecy and how many organizations of the government, even civil organizations of the government were working at the top secret level. But also at the same time, it, it, it revealed just how extensive the world of defense contractors and what we call beltway bandits are, uh, just how many companies there were, uh, what, what it was that they were actually doing and how much of government functions they were slowly taking over from everything from intelligence analysis and IT to actually doing the targeting of drones. So those were all being done by contractors as opposed to being done by government people or military uniform people. Uh, I thought the, the series in the end, uh, you know, which was about 30 pages in the newspaper over three days, uh, was really groundbreaking, and the the data that was presented ten years ago and the uh, illustrations were really top notch. They were really cutting edge at the time. So the, the Top Secret America project itself spawned a huge website, which is still active at the Washington Post, and uh, really uh, tried to explain to people kind of how Washington D.C had become so dominant in American society that it had gone from sort of a backwater 
town in the Reagan administration uh, to an international city and a, and a corporate headquarters where companies like General Dynamics and Northrop Grumman and Booz Allen Hamilton, et cetera, had moved to the D.C. suburbs, how seven of the 15 wealthiest counties in America were in the D.C. metropolitan area, how it had the highest per capita income. And so really, in a way, uh, it kind of created a, a little bit of the factual foundation of how many people see it, Washington today, how powerful it is, how rich it is, how uh, how much there's a revolving door between government and industry and then back to government and how uh, powerful the, the government itself is in American society, not just on the federal level, but how it's encroached into the states as well. So the project I think is a launching point to understanding much of the animus that exists today, as Donald Trump called it, the swamp, uh, as people in uh, even up to January 6th of this of last year during the insurrection, you know, really were focused on Washington as the problem. They were focused on even being opposed to law enforcement, which was certainly not a normal behavior of the right wing world. Uh, so so really talking about the evolution of America post 9-11 and then looking at it in the last decade, uh, not only has the contracting world expanded and gotten bigger, and as, as we know, the, the military has continued to grow both under the Obama administrations, Trump administrations, and now under Biden. So we see the foundations of really the world we live in today. Right. So there's huge changes after 9-11. And one of the intro themes of your book is the growth of the secret American state. So you talk about how many, like how much money these guys had. So they had money to spend and it got distributed into so many different organizations. <laughs> Can you talk about these organizations that got popped up or had cash and what they did with it? Well, you know, the, the most important one, which still has a very uh, influential role in our society is the Department of Homeland Security, which was created out of 9-11, uh, I think, uh, to do probably uh, an impossible job, which was to, <coughs> on the one hand, be in charge of counterterrorism when they weren't in charge of counterterrorism. On the second hand, to be law enforcement agency protecting uh, everything from uh, federal buildings to airports but not really being the premier law enforcement agency of the United States, which is the FBI, of being a quasi-military force protecting the border and the ports and et cetera, but not being the military. So the Department of Homeland Security uh, kind of became uh, the, the institutional beneficiary of 9-11, but also at the same time, it, it had a muddled mission and that muddled mission has really persisted to this day uh, when I think there are authentic arguments to be made to eliminate some of the Department of Homeland Security agencies. Uh, you know, why is TSA an agency of the government? Doesn't it need to be privatized? Uh, what is ICE and what ICE does, what does ICE actually do that's different from the FBI or, <coughs> excuse me, from uh, uh, the Department of Justice? One other thing, too, is Homeland Security was created, but also the DNI, too, right? The D Director <laughs> of National Intelligence. And that also kind of had problems 
actually being an effective overseer of the <laughs> intel. You you write about that, like so these new departments were created, but within the huge context of top secret America, they kind of overlapped, but also conflicted. And there's you talk in your book, like how many of these guys are doing the same work in these different agencies or whatever. It's really a huge cash waste, right? Well, I think that the Directorate of National Intelligence, again, another large institution created out of 9-11, created out of the emotion of 9-11. That's the point, that it was supposed to be the agency that would then help everybody to connect the dots. It was supposed to be the agency that would laser-like focus on counterterrorism. It was supposed to be the agency <coughs> that would manage the giant intelligence community. And it really has turned out to be none of that. Uh, you know, it's just another player. The CIA is still the dominant intelligence agency. The Pentagon, of course, controls most of the largest intelligence agencies, the National Reconnaissance Office, Air Force, Army, and Navy intelligence, etc. So what it was intended to do in a very emotional way didn't necessarily result in what uh, happened. And as we saw, I think, on January 6th uh, of last year, there was this bizarre situation where uh, the U.S. Capitol Police was only responsible for Capitol Hill, and Congress had sovereign territory in Capitol Hill that wasn't really of access to the, D the District of Columbia Police or uh, then you had the National Guard, and they had a whole different chain of command. And then you had the FBI, the Secret Service, the Secret Service part of the Department of Homeland Security that was responsible first and foremost for protecting the vice president and the other successors to the presidency. Uh, the FBI, which in theory is responsible for all federal law enforcement, but not really because there's also a federal protective service. There's also uh, 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 ICE police. There's the Border Patrol, et cetera. Uh, then there's the U.S. Park Police, which is a part of the Department of the Interior that's responsible for the National Mall and the Ellipse, but not responsible for anything else. And so you had all of these agencies clashing in a, in a, in a very 9-11-like uh, confusion on January 6th with nobody really being in charge, uh, nobody really taking the lead. And the intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies, just as they had done on that uh, on on 9/11, uh, missed what was going on, missed any adequate warning that would have helped to create uh, sufficient defense against these protesters. Uh, they missed it all. They missed what was going on in American society. And so we we find ourselves in a state today where the institutions that were created just 20 years ago. Uh, are, are still inadequate. And I think we are slowly seeing a shift towards a domestic agenda on the part of the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI. And to tell you the truth, that really worries me because, uh, again, uh, we're doing it more in an emotional way than we do are doing it in a sensible way of actually saying, do we need all these different police departments? Do we need all these different law enforcement agencies? Do we need all of these different intelligence agencies? Do we need the Department of Homeland Security? And I think the answer to many of those questions is no, we don't. It's not effective. It's proven itself not effective. And so if something has proven itself not effective, why are we throwing more money at it? Why are we beefing up the personnel 
in order to reward them in a funny way for their own failure, the failure of what we have already mandated them to do. And so this is the situation that exists in top secret America, which is that this national security state really operates autonomously and we have very in, little influence over what they do. Right. So there's the, but it, the, the most important word in your title or very important word is secrecy. So all right. these people get this top secret clearance and then there's this veil of secrecy over everything. You were working with Dana going like you were looking for addresses and places where <laughs> some of these places existed with weird addresses or even just no street name, but they're littered. I lived in Northern Virginia and there's weird buildings there with weird entrances <laughs> all over the place. You don't know what they're doing, but it's like you in your book, you show that these are overlapping or they're just doing the same yeah. make work. Yeah. And you even make it a point like one guy's supposed to read over 10,000 pages of information produced a day, which is not plausible. And that's just how much uh, stuff they're making. But it, is it any have any real world effect or beneficial effect? It benefits those guys because you point out in your book, they're all very well paid. Once you get that social security clearance, uh, you're golden, right? Yeah. Well, so what we've seen, not just in this concentration in Washington, but we've also seen this explosion of secrecy. And the explosion of secrecy really is just a part of, uh, of our lives today. Uh, the federal government has no intention whatsoever of, of beating back secrecy or declassifying more information. And again, if I take it up to the present moment, uh, you know, January 6th of last year, uh, the intelligence agencies probably possessed all of the information that they needed in order to better understand what was going on with these organizations and with the protesters. But nobody was really in charge and nobody really moved the information around. And at the level of uh, the states and at the level of the U.S. Capitol Police and others, they don't really work at this level of classification. So they wouldn't have even been able to get it if they if they wanted it. And so we we now know that the FBI had confidential informants within the protest movements. We now know that there was monitoring of social media, even monitoring of encrypted social media. We now know that there were many intelligence signs and many intelligence reports done, but they were done at a level of classification or a level of compartmentalization that didn't mean that they got to the people who needed to get them. And so we, we have created this Frankenstein monster. And, uh, and it's really, we, we really need to ask ourselves whether or not uh, uh, this is serving our purposes. Is it serving the purpose of domestic security and safety? Is it serving the purpose of uh, national security around the world? I mean, we, we have been fighting these wars and in, 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 I know people think Afghanistan and Iraq, but it's really in 20 countries around the world uh, for almost 20 years now. And I can't say to you with any real uh, confidence that there's any country in the world that's safer today than it was 20 years ago. So we've been failing all around the world. And yet those who are the architects of this failure uh, continue to get the money, continue to get the, uh, the, the autonomy to do their work. Uh, they continue to be on TV telling us what we should think about national security. And it's like, wait a minute, you guys on TV are the very architects of all the failure. And now you're telling us what to do. So every aspect of it infects our lives in a way that I think most people don't see. Right. I mean, and it's, it's a huge number. I think that their total national budget 
it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars. So oh, it's it's nearing it's nearing a trillion dollars now between the nuclear weapons budget of the Department of Energy, between Homeland Security, which is now spending close to fifty billion dollars a year, and the Pentagon's budget, which is up to almost eight hundred billion dollars a year. Okay, if you include the Pentagon, you're at a trillion. But these other organizations, and you've got like geospatial organizations, you have <laughs> so many strange things. And we don't even talk about, uh, what is it, the NSA. So they have yeah. their own campuses in weird places that are totally autonomous, almost like a huge corporation. But are how effective and efficient really are there with there's no real oversight. And these guys can just well, BS Congress. I don't know. It was kind of funny, too, reading your book. Like they had the whole skiff competition, like who had the biggest secret room was the most <laughs> could show off how potent and powerful they are. Like that's something that's very specific to Washington. Yeah. But, yeah. It's very specific to Washington. But also I would remind you that when we say top secret America, there's also a, an above top secret America. I mean, in a way, top secret isn't even good enough for these guys anymore. So they have clearances that are above top secret and programs that are above top secret called special access programs. So, so it's, it, that inflation has also exploded since 9-11. And then on top of it, really one of the biggest unknown impacts of uh, the information overload era that the uh, Defense Department and the intelligence community uh, grapples with as much as we grapple with it in our personal lives. That that whole system has spawned uh, a, a giant industry, which is most of the uh, corporate workers dealing with creating software programs that are more and more able to uh, ingest all of this intelligence, process all of this intelligence, and distribute it. So less and less human eyeballs are actually putting being put on the intelligence. It's more and more automated. There's more and more artificial intelligence and machine translation going into intelligence today. So the number of actual analysts, not people who are processing information, but people who are pondering what that information means becomes smaller and smaller because the the complexity of what we are collecting has become so great that we need enormous software programs, graphical interfaces, uh, 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 visual uh, cues uh, in order to just collect and, and interpret the information. And by the time that information is uh, into the system, we're on to the next cycle already. So, so that's how uh, the intelligence agencies can miss so much while perfectly processing everything and seeing nothing. Right. That's incredible. And you even have quotes from guys in the uh, intel community saying, this doesn't work. These things don't work. I don't get this. So they're even acknowledging their own shortcomings, right? Yeah, we interviewed um, the director of national intelligence, James Clapper, at the time. And we presented him with some of our findings. And his answer was, you know, I don't, I really don't know how many special access programs there are within, within my own community. I don't know how many contractors work for me, you know? And then he said, probably only God knows. It was like, 
what? what? This is like one of the highest level government officials telling us he doesn't even know what's going on within his own agency. Right, he's on TV all the time, or he was back yeah, in the Trump and now he I mean, is, yeah. But, telling uh, us what uh, we should think. <laughs> right. I mean, it's really incredible. He doesn't have an overarching view of the entire intelligence community. Um, yeah, I mean, and also it was just kind of interesting, like, how the how it had spread out all through dc it's really not centralized within anything close to the white house there's just so no, many not anymore yeah yeah and yeah, you kind not of anymore and around the country and around right. the country i mean there are gigantic hubs of top secret work going on in aurora colorado in augusta georgia in san antonio texas in in El Segundo, California. I mean, these are kind of well known to the people who work in this world. But if I told you that like one of the prime centers in America for the translation and collection of information on the Middle East uh, was located in Augusta, Georgia, you would probably be flabbergasted. So, so computerization and the internet and net networking has allowed the intelligence community dis to disperse out of Washington. But one of the reasons why they dispersed out of Washington was people couldn't afford to live in Washington. And there was no, you know, and there was too, too many people to actually be. So at, at the National Security Agency, as an example, in National Security Agency headquarters at Fort Meade, Maryland, uh, there are probably about 10,000 uh, civilians uh, working for the NSA, uh, but there's also an NSA hub in Georgia. There's an NSA hub in Texas. There's an NSA hub in Utah. There's an NSA hub in Hawaii. And each of those employ another three or 4,000 people. So it, you can't even see the whole thing because it has become so dispersed. Right. It's great. I live in El Segundo. So I know like there's a huge Air Force thing there. My understanding is they are operating the drone strikes right there and then going to have lunch and, you know, going back to work. It's really crazy. <laughs> it's hard to believe, but they're facilitating this kind of long-term, low-level warfare, uh, you know, just in a suburban environment like mom and pop. They call it Mayberry, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's happening all over the country. Drone strikes are being uh, directed from North Dakota. They're being directed from upstate New York. They're being directed from Texas. Uh, here's a fact that really is something that stuns most people. So when we say we're withdrawing from Afghanistan, that means we take the people out of the country. But all around Afghanistan, both at land and sea bases in Pakistan, in the, in the stands of the North Caucasus to the north, uh, in Oman, in the Persian Gulf, uh, in Iraq, etc., Turkey, you know, there are there are drones, there are planes, there are intelligence collection stations, there are all of the mechanisms of being able to continue to conduct a drone war, as an example, or to continue to conduct intelligence collection without actually being on the ground. That's what we've created. And even when we had 2,500 people on the ground in Afghanistan, and that's all we had at the end, for every one person who was on the ground in Afghanistan, there were a thousand people behind them right. working to support them. So, so literally there are people in the United States who work the shift of being in sync with Afghanistan 
in order to be the intelligence analysts and the communicators and the command structure to fight the war on the other side of the planet. So literally those people go to work at four in the morning, let's say, and then they leave work at three in the afternoon. But the bizarre part of it, as you just mentioned, is they go and pick their kids up from school and they go to soccer practice and they live their normal lives. But they are as involved in warfare and as much an important part of our ability to fight wars as are the people who are in the front. And in fact, the more that we have everything outside of where we're fighting, the more that we have remote bases, especially in the United States, the more that we are making war more and more antiseptic and more and more able to be perpetual because, uh, because warfare doesn't demand a huge number of soldiers on the ground anymore. And so we have created a system which in a funny way just increases the autonomy and the, and the perpetuity of the, warfare, of the warfare world. Right. We talked about that in the last show. Yeah, that was... Yeah. Can you talk also about these fusion centers? They kind of popped up after 9-11. Right. And are they even really necessary? Like it's an additional layer of state control, right? Yes. So after 9-11, with the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, we also created a network of fusion centers. They're, they're, we don't want to say intelligence centers because they belong to the states. But uh, fusion centers that uh, exist now in every state capital in the country, as well as in most of the major metropolitan areas. So there's multiple fusion stations, for instance, that are responsible for Washington, D.C., for Chicago, for Boston, for L.A., etc. And um, and now I think there's a network of about 60 or so fusion centers around the country. They receive, in theory, the information from the federal government that tells them uh, what the threats are in their states or in their local communities, but they also produce intelligence. They produce their own assessments of what's going on <coughs> in those places. So <coughs> again, if we fast forward to January 6th, I do think that the fusion centers play an important role in American society. If we're going to have a homeland security apparatus at the state level, which most states have today, then we definitely need to have an intelligence component of that apparatus. <clears throat> but it really doesn't uh, serve the function of moving the information to the people who need it. So for instance, when the FBI has a, a confidential source or when there's a top secret piece of intelligence, it doesn't circulate to the states. Uh, 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 a big print version circulates to the states, a, a, a summary circulates to the states. And oftentimes that means they don't know uh, with, in the same wording of what people are saying. They get a summary of what people are saying. They, they may not know that the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, or some other organization uh, is actually planning to attack the Capitol. What they know is that they're going to Washington to protest. And so that lack of transparency between these national security agencies, which now are down to every state level, uh, really has a significant and, and, and serious impact on, uh, on um, uh, our ability to uh, preserve the domestic tranquility, which is, which is the Constitution's way of, of, of describing it. And I like 
that idea of having something that is associated with a positive outcome, not the repression of America and additional censorship and uh, and and a and a, 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 a gulf between left and right, but but a, but a more mo- po- positive oriented infrastructure, which is oriented towards the health and safety of the country, from COVID to the infrastructure to security. And I think we've dropped the ball on everything else in the name of national security, even at the state level, even at the state level. And what? And so in your view, after looking through all this top security, I mean, you looked at jobs and so many elements of it. Yeah. What's the, I mean, how are they ever going to pull it back or come back from just this huge behemoth that it is? I don't see that. I don't really see it happening. I, I, I'm sorry to say uh, a January 6th just provokes growth and additional institutional uh, padding. Uh, nobody ever is accountable in America in a meaningful way. No, no, no agency is ever, you know, abandoned. So we had all these agencies that created the Department of Homeland Security, the Border Patrol, the Customs Service, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, the the Secret Service, the Coast Guard, and on and on and on. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security was supposed to have eliminated the duplication, but basically all of those institutions still exist within the Department of Homeland Security. So nobody ever loses their jobs. Nobody ever, no institution ever really goes away. Uh, you know, we rename everything constantly. So that's also the confusion. Uh, and um, and we see the growth of agencies in, in the area of cybersecurity. We see the growth of agencies in the area of domestic terrorism today. We see the growth of agencies. So it's always growth. You know, very little personal accountability. I mean, nobody got fired after 9-11. Nobody, uh, you know, the, 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 the chief of the U.S. Capitol Police and the sergeant at arms in the Senate and the House resigned after January 6th. But nobody else was held accountable for what happened. So, so I feel like this is the world we live in. I, I'm sorry to say so. I, 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 this is the world we live in. And that world... Uh, is dominated by the national security establishment, and I don't see it changing anytime soon. I, I, we, we literally operate within a political world today in America, in which what happens domestically and what happens in the national security world are completely separated. And even though this is such a powerful world with such a powerful uh, a corporate uh, background. Uh, the truth of the matter is that uh, that I don't really see uh, much evidence uh, that uh, that they're producing very much, and I certainly don't see much evidence that we're bringing them under control. So, for all the commissions and all the blue ribbon panels that have been created after January sixth, as an example, they're still stuck on what Trump did and what Trump didn't do, and they're not really paying attention as much to what the government did and what the government didn't do to hold them accountable and really try to uh, reform them in a way that would make them uh, uh, useful in the future. But don't they, don't these groups resist reform and take steps to ensure they're not reformed? Well, I don't even think they need to resist because our first approach in every failure is give them more money, give them more people and they won't fail in the future. 
And it's like, wait a minute, this was your mandate to begin with. I mean, the Department of Homeland Security is just an example, was completely absent on January 6th. Wait a minute, this was the very institution that was created to deal with this problem of our not having a domestic security agency in the government. And they were absent. They were completely and totally absent. They were not the producer of the predominant intelligence reports. That was the FBI and the Secret Service. They were not present at the Capitol Hill themselves, except in tiny numbers. Uh, they completely were ignored in the councils of national security as January 6th approached. So you have to ask yourself, they don't really need to do anything to preserve themselves because we do it for them. We allow them to be secret. We allow them to get bigger and bigger budgets. We, we throw more people at them. We allow them to contract more. So they don't really need to do anything. We're, we're the facilitators. We're like, you know, we're like codependents and, uh, and we're making this world operate as is. And don't they use the contractors to kind of push out some things that I read in your book, like they got Polish contractors in mm -hmm. Afghanistan that they didn't have to have the same oversight for, right? Well, there's always the problem with the contracting world that you don't have the same level of oversight. And then you have the phenomenon that when it's a little bit too uh, sensitive for the U.S. military or even for the CIA to operate, you can always rely upon contractors to do the work. So in many countries in Africa, as an example, we have contractors who are essentially doing what the military used to be doing, flying reconnaissance planes over those countries, uh, feeding the intelligence system, uh, responsible for security and even for liaison with local governments and local secret services about what they're doing. So we literally have contractors doing all of the work of government, something which is supposed to be against the law. A contractor is not supposed to be involved in something that's called inherent government functions. Inherent government's functions are supposed to be only conducted by government. So the contracting world, it's kind of become in a way inscrutable because on the one hand, they are the IT gods that keep this whole thing running. You know, on the other hand, they are the producers of software and in artificial intelligence that is essentially running the intelligence community today. And on the other hand, they're, they're out there flying drones, maintaining drones, uh, doing the targeting itself of individuals and of organizations. They are in Africa. They are in the Middle East. There are more at, look, at the end of our presence in Afghanistan, there were more contractors on the ground than there were U.S. government employees. Wow. That's I mean, incredible. that's the reality almost everywhere in the Middle East and Africa today. It's just incredible that this this whole huge <laughs> system of, uh, of control and intelligence is really just there, but it doesn't have, I mean, you don't see that much effectiveness at all, I guess. I mean, <laughs> it's just... It's it's just a huge bureaucracy that really doesn't have a lot to show. I guess not too. Well, many you have to when when we talk about effectiveness, William. It's really important. I think that we think about effectiveness not in we process we successfully processed a hundred thousand intelligence reports today, but we prevented a January six. We prevented a nine eleven. We 
we we won a war here, we won a battle there. And so we we kind of have in, are in this world in which there can be bureaucratic perfection and actual failure. So the so the agencies can say, well, you know, we might have missed everything that was going on in the world, but we reported every report on time this year. It's like Wait a minute. So, so you well, who cares if you reported everything on time? If you filled out all your checklists every day and they were perfect, and you got a ninety-nine percent score on your test, if you're idiots, I mean, how how can we, as the American people, be tolerant of that state of affairs? Right. And not only that, but again, as you mentioned, with Clapper on TV and all these other guys on TV, John Brennan, former head of the CIA. Uh, Michael Hayden, former head of the NSA and the CIA, you know, they're all the people who are on TV telling us how we should be doing it when they were the ones who were responsible for all of the failure that we have seen in the last two decades. Yeah, that's a great way to end it. Where's anything else you'd like to add, uh, Bill or William? Before? Well, so um, I have a, a couple of new projects that I think people would be interested in, uh, starting actually tomorrow of all days which is the one year anniversary of the 2020 elections. Uh, I'm starting a series at Newsweek called the road to nine, uh, the road to January 6th. And it's going to have a daily article telling you what happened a year ago today. That is going to, with a lot of new information, a lot of new intelligence reports that have never been reported on before that shows you the buildup to January 6th and what, everyone was doing, the intelligence agencies, the, the protesters, Donald Trump and the White House, etc. So it's really a lot of new information, inside information about what caused January 6th to occur, that, that in a much more complex way than just it was all Donald Trump's fault and he incited the riots, etc. It really examines what was going on in America and in the underbelly of America during the same time period. And then I have a new project that I'm about to launch with Mark Ambender, which is a project uh, on Substack, uh, which is uh, a secrecy newsletter that's not about secrecy, but it's about secrets. <laughs> so we are actually going to reveal uh, new secrets all the time uh, that are secrets that are that are not legitimate, that are held secret in order to protect the bureaucracy. And we're going to uh, reveal uh, what the government is actually doing on a day-to-day -day basis at the top secret and beyond level. Excellent. If you send me that link, I will put it in the show notes on YouTube Terrific. and on the podcast. So people yeah, can check that out on Substack. Terrific. Again, it's William M. Arkin. And we talked about just topics within the book, Top Secret America, the rise of the new American security state. So thank you so much, William. Thank you for having me on again. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Stay there.